Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson Nutrition. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit in a healthy and balanced diet. I absolutely love supporting my clients to find freedom with food, some peace in their bodies, and to free up space for what really matters. Whether that's plans to start a family, or to have more energy and brain space for relationships, hobbies, passions, or travel, or just to enjoy that slice of cake without a side of guilt. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. I want to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of gray when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being. I'm going to be interviewing experts and just downright legendary human beings, fighting the good fight against diet culture, and helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. I want to show that it's never black or white, but 50 shades of gray. Just an important disclaimer that this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. Hi everyone and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. I am so excited that you are here. I've had this podcast in the pipeline for well over a year and so it feels a bit surreal to be recording this um, but I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm not going to lie, huge respect um, for all the podcasters out there who make this look easy as someone who is definitely not the most talented in the technology department. Um, This took me a lot of time and support and encouragement from some amazing colleagues so so thank you to those colleagues as well so why the 50 shades of food and nutrition podcast well I've always loved learning and hearing from experts in the field about the latest research on a range of topics from nutrition intuitive eating eating disorder recovery and things that impact us all from screen time to stress management social justice and just surviving in an ever-changing and uncertain world Like I mentioned, when it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. And there is a lot of black and white uh, blanket advice out there and a lot of kind of scaremongering and extreme stuff. So I really wanted to speak to this um, and really look for the gray in what it means to practice authentic well-being defined by us. It's my hope that this podcast will continue to challenge diet culture and really help us to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health and well-being. Most importantly, I am crazy excited to share with you some of the guest speakers that I was able to interview for this series. It was such a privilege and I think I was literally an overexcited fangirl in every episode. Um, So I hope it gets you as excited as I've been. Um, Before we get to today's incredible guest, Um, and I can't quite believe that um, I managed to be able to interview her. I just wanted to share our wonderful sponsor for this episode. I would like to introduce our incredible sponsor for this episode, Day. I'm totally thrilled to be partnering with Day. Day believes in health on your terms because they recognize that there is no one size fits all when it comes to health. Literally the exact same values we hold at Isa Robinson Nutrition and on this podcast. 
Day has created a tampon subscription that goes with your flow and fits both your needs and lifestyle without compromising on your values. Their tampons are made from lab-tested, certified organic cotton and a bio-based sugarcane applicator. You can choose from their naked tampon or clinically validated CBD-infused tampon to build your own subscription box and tailor the delivery based on the length of your cycle. Day has committed to practicing radical transparency to its consumers, lifting the veil on its supply chain, including sharing true and retail costs. Day also believes that female health is human health, and they're investing in research with the aim of overcoming historical gender biases in medical research and product innovation. Day is also committed to making its products and services as environmentally friendly as possible, including promoting the well-being of the planet, the company, and everyone part of it. With the sale of their products, you're also supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as survivors of domestic abuse. I absolutely love using Day's products and also being part of a brand that is seriously paving the way towards a greater mission and purpose. To try Day tampons, use the code SHADES5 at the checkout, which will get you five pounds off your first box when you subscribe. Thank you so much, Day, for all that you are doing and for sponsoring this podcast. It is with great excitement that I announce today's guest, Evelyn Tribley. Evelyn is an award-winning registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders and intuitive eating with a private practice in Newport Beach, California. She has written seven books, including bestsellers, Healthy Homestyle Cooking, and is the co-author of Intuitive Eating, the fourth edition, uh, which came out in June 2020, um, which Evelyn wrote alongside co-author Elise Resch. Um, and I always find the, the start of this story really interesting because Evelyn and Elise started out um, in weight management services, and they were helping their clients with weight loss. Um, but they began to really take a step back and perhaps check in with what they were seeing in their clients and began to question the ways in which they were working. Um, and from that, um, and from seeing the kind of harms of diet culture and that these weight loss interventions weren't working, they coined intuitive eating. And the first edition was written in 1995. And over the past 25 years, it has evolved and grown. And yeah, we're now on the fourth edition and there's over 140 studies to back intuitive eating up. Um, but I just wanted to share a little bit more about Evelyn. Um, she was the nutrition expert for Good Morning America. Um, she has been a national spokesperson for the American Dietetic Association, which she was for six years. Um, and a contributing editor for Shape Magazine, uh, where she had a monthly column. Um, Evelyn is incredibly passionate, um, wise, funny, and I just find all of her wisdom so empowering. Um, and yeah, it's just a huge honor and privilege to be able to speak to her for this first episode. And what I really wanted to, to touch on is actually what we mean by intuitive eating, because as intuitive eating has become more and more popular, uh, something that is concerning is how it can be co-opted by diet culture or really misunderstood. So with Evelyn, we go right back to the basics, how her and Elise 
coined intuitive eating, the 10 principles, the research, and really looking at some of the nuances in kind of spotting fake intuitive eating and how you might be able to get started in your own intuitive eating journey. So um, such a huge, huge thank you to Evelyn. Um, I can't believe that this is, is the first episode of the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast because when I found intuitive eating about five or six years ago, I know it was a penny drop moment for me and has been a massive influence in my personal and professional life. So um, yeah, just a massive thank you to Evelyn and Elise for all they do. And I will stop rambling now. Without further ado, here is episode one with Evelyn Tribbley. So I am joined by the incredible uh, Evelyn Tribbley. Evelyn, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm, I'm doing okay. Considering all the things happening in the world right now, I'd like to just acknowledge that I don't know anyone who's not been affected by all that's happening. So <laughs> I'm not going to say, oh, I'm just doing fabulous. You know, it's like, ah, you know, we're being stressed and pulled in ways we've never been before. That's what I'm seeing in myself and also in the lives of the, the patients and clients that I work with. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm so seeing that um, in, in my clients and, and again with friends and family as well. So I think it's nice to, to be honest about some of the challenges that we're all facing at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So Evelyn, I would love to start off if it's all right with you. Um, if you wouldn't mind perhaps introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your work, because you are the queen and co-author with Elise Rush of Intuitive Eating. Wow. How do I, how do I, <laughs> wow. <laughs> let me, let me catch let my me breath. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I think you just did it. Um, you know, I, I'll start by saying that I'm so excited in terms of where intu intuitive eating is at in terms of the model. You know, it's over 140 studies now to date uh, looking at our model and really showing some really encouraging benefits. Uh, there was a pilot study that was just published a couple of months ago in, in women who have a disordered eating. And what they found was it was improvements across the board. It was based off of our intuitive eating workbook. And it gave me a lot of reason for hope for several reasons is one, this study was really intentionally looking at uh, racial diversity. Uh, and so often what we see in, in people of color that, that that is omitted in this, this kind of, of, of research and study. And so that was done. They were also looking at access. That's another important issue with intuitive eating. It's one thing when you've got privilege, but what if you don't have the funds and so on? And so they were looking at, you know, can we do this as a group or can we do this as, a, as someone having a self-study? And what they found was uh, impactful. And that, that to me is just really encouraging. Now, now they need to take it another step further and that is to have a control group to really validate what, what they are seeing. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. And I think it's so awesome that we're seeing studies um, just in so many different groups and, and saying that intuitive eating can be for, for everybody, which I think is, is so powerful. And Evelyn, you are a dietitian. Yeah. I guess um, if it's all right with you, I might be really curious to hear about how you um, first kind of came to producing the principles of intuitive eating from oh my gosh. traditional dietetic education and training. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm starting to talk more about this, especially when I'm training dietitians, and, and then that's to recognize our origin story that most dietitians and not dare I say health professionals are really trained in, in diet culture, you know, and Elise and I were separately in, in private practice using our very skilled dietitian ways, you know, helping people quote with lifestyle meal plans, but there was really an agenda of, of weight loss. And what we were seeing is not only was it really not working that people were coming back and blaming themselves and not feeling good in their in their bodies and we're like you know this is this is not right something something is wrong here and so that's when we really started diving in to the research and looking at another way that we can be looking at health and the thing that's so shocking to me that i still struggle with is there's really a body of research right now that shows how not only ineffective dieting is in terms of sustainability for the vast majority of people by whatever name you want to call it and i'll tell you diet culture is is tricky and in shape shifting because now they're they're co-opting the language of intuitive eating and other types of things language of psychology language of mindful eating as well and so that that was one of the reasons why that 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 we did this and so now we have that back then there was some really good research showing that dieting doesn't work and and, and the thing i want to really stress is that it causes harm i don't think that message is out there enough in terms of increasing you know risk of eating disorders increasing body dissatisfaction increased weight cycling in fact there was a really profound study just published um, out of the uk looking at teenagers spanning 30 years and it was a study on over 22,000 uh, teens and they were asking the question, what are weight, quote, weight control practices like right now in this group compared to what it was like um, years ago? And what they're seeing is that more teens are dieting, especially boys. And what they saw is what we've known all along in the research, it's not effective and it's causing harm. And in this case, what they ended up seeing was a lot of depression. And so I think what we really need to do as health professionals is to recognize when we start talking about health, especially dietitians, there's more to health than just what we eat. There's our mental health, there's our relational health, our psychosocial health, all these kinds of things. And yes, we can say, you know, what the food that we put in her body has a role, but we need to step back and look at all of these other bigger pictures, including the fact that if people are worrying and stressing about every morsel they're putting into their body, that's not good for mental health as well. And so I would say it's also been a humbling journey. You know, as you know, Elise and I updated the intuitive eating book uh, last year. We came out with the fourth edition and we decided, you know, let's go back and, and really take a look at the details of our, our writing. And we were humbled to see, you know, there where we have grown and evolved <laughs> way past the origins of the book, including looking at issues around, you know, weight stigma, stigma how diet culture is, is rooted both in, in racism and fat phobia. We didn't unpack a lot of that, but we certainly addressed some of it. And, you know, part of it is as, as, as we learn more, we, oh my God, I'm, I'm misquoting. I think it's either Audre Lorde or, or Maya Angelou that as you, as you learn better, you do better, something to that effect. And so we are evolving and continue to evolve. Yeah. And, and I, I love that. And I have loved watching uh, the principles evolve and having the next copies of your of your books and, and seeing how that changes. And I, I think it is such an inspiring message for other healthcare professionals to know that there's a space to reflect, to learn, to change, to grow. Um, and it's so amazing to see you and um, Elise kind of forging the way for that. 
Um, and I think something that you, you mentioned in there was how dieting is really harmful and how that yeah. is often overlooked. And you alluded to um, the dangers of weight cycling, increased disordered eating, eating disorders. But I guess perhaps what I'm kind of w- wondering about here is, you know, sometimes I think when people hear diets don't work, they, they're met with a whole range of different emotions, like yeah. anger, frustration, grief. And I was just curious if you might be able to speak to that tool. It's actually a really good question. I want to look at it in a couple of perspectives. Um, the health professionals that I train, since you asked me earlier about dietitians, you know, sometimes when they hear that statistic, how diets don't work for the vast majority of people, intentional weight loss through diet man- manipulation does not work for the vast majority of people and actually is one of the biggest predictors of, of weight gain rebound. Um, sometimes when I see health professionals are assuming, oh, that's just fad diets. Like, no, the the research, most of this has actually been under medical supervision. I think that's important to to recognize as well. And so I see with a lot of health professionals, they go through this place of cognitive dissonance because they're not familiar with the research. And once they start reading it, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, they feel a little stuck, a little, a little uncomfortable. But then when we're talking about the individual who hears this for the first time, the client, the patient, the consumer, um, there, it, it is a lot of mixed emotions because sometimes when you start looking at all the time that you've spent in this. And, and one of the things I, I, I have conversations around with my own patients is, you know, the intentions. And it doesn't matter how kind of a person are, no matter how noble your intentions. And the, the biggest thing I hear in terms of intentions, well, I'm doing it for my health, which has actually become code for diet culture, you know, trying to change the size of your body. And so there can be anger. There can also be what a this determination, like, well, I'm going to be in the 1%, you know, I've seen that happen also. And so one of the things I like to do with all of these, no matter where you fall on this, uh, as a health professional or a consumer and so on, is it's really, really normal to have conflicting feelings about this. I've had a lot of people coming into intuitive eating and not so sure about it, you know, and, and what I want to really stress about that, number one, all are welcome here. And this is really normal. And I would say, especially for those who've been steeped in diet culture for some kind of time. So it's it's really understandable to have all these conflicting feelings, including one of uh, wanting to protect yourself and including uh, wanting both. Well, I want to do both intuitive eating and I want to see, I want to change the size of my body. I hear that a lot. And so what's really important is, is I don't shame the person for that desire, especially recognizing the culture that we live in. It's really understandable. But one of the things I have my clients take a look at is what has been the experience of your own body and I tell you it it can really be a lot of tearful sessions when they realize how checked out of life they've been in this pursuit of shrinking the body um, how many times the opposite things ended up happening and I will often hear people just in utter frustration saying I don't even know how to, to eat anymore I can tell you the you know, the nutrients, the grams of this or that, but I don't even know how to actually eat. And what I say with that, number one, that's a powerful realization. And number two, when you think about how diet culture and any plan that you're following 
really disconnects you from the body. It's not having you check in with your body. Rather, it's it's telling you what to do. And so when you do these kinds of plans, when you fall into that rabbit hole, no matter how holy it seems, the reason it, it comes at a big expense, this disconnection, which is why it can feel utterly confusing. And so I say, based on that, that's actually kind of a normal place to be, but it's really, really frustrating. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I think the the disconnection and the way that dieting is such a kind of trust disruptor to the connection that we have with our body um, can be kind of a profound realization as part of the process. Well, you know what? It's such a big part of the process. I, I now teach about it when I'm training health professionals, and also in this new book I have coming out, uh, it's it's one of my categories. I call it the trust disruptors because I have seen this as being one of the biggest barriers in the people that I work with. They don't trust that their body works. That yeah, this intuitive eating might be good for other people, but. I'm, I'm broken, I'm messed up. Those are the kinds of things I hear. And I'll say, no, it's in a way, it's, it's almost the reverse. It's as if your body doesn't trust you. And we'll talk about their experiences. Like I will often ask, you know, how often have you been in the midst of some kind of diet or plan and you suddenly out of nowhere have lost the control eating? I hear that so much, it's become one of my routine questions I ask. And they will often look at me in surprise and ask, how did, how do you know? <laughs> well, it's a predictable thing that ends up happening because your body is trying to survive. It's trying to inhale food no differently than when you inhale air, if you've been cut off from uh, air supply for a while, it's a, this big gasp for life. And then what ends up happening, your cells are doing that on a survival level, but you on a mental level are freaking out. That's what I usually hear. Like, there's no way I'd want this to happen. And so then that gets internalized. I don't trust my body. And so instead, what I start offering is an invitation to start looking at, wow, look at how your body is working. I understand that kind of eating didn't feel good. I really get that. It was distressing. But do you see how your body was actually trying to survive and protect you? And what happens along this journey over time, the more that you're kind to it, the more that you're consistent with it in terms of nourishment and self-care, there gets to be this sort of predictability. And the fear goes down. And I want to give you an example of this. I just, I, I hear this a lot too. I want to mention this. I, you know, I think, you know, I just finished a, a 10 day series of intuitive eating on Instagram, including a videos that accompanied the, the post. And I had somebody DM me, she wasn't comfortable, you know, contributing to the comments publicly. And she said, you know, she was in recovery from dieting. It's been about a couple of years and she felt she was pretty in a good place with intuitive eating, except at nighttime, she would have this fear and this anxiety about getting hungry. And she wanted some feedback on that. And this is a pattern I see a lot when people have um, committed to trying to fake out their hunger or to not uh, eat 
based uh, past whatever the food plan is saying, even if, quote, there are free foods, those foods are generally not satisfying to take care of hunger. And so I often view this as a form of trauma. When the, on a cellular level, when the cells think, oh my God, we can't eat, that's a big, big threat. And what happens over time with consistency uh, is that starts to dissipate. And one of the things I suggested, and this is, this is not a cliffhanger, you know, is to remind yourself uh, that I will feed my body and that I, I got you. <laughs> and so sometimes it's just a recognition, I got you. And sometimes what I will also do, uh, and I usually do this in person, I don't think I've ever said this on a podcast, but if a person is comfortable, I, I will ask him, you know, what would it be like if you'd put your hand on your heart and say, I got you, I'm never dieting again, or whatever words resonate with you. And I've had some patients say, that sounds kind of weird, and I'll model it. And I say, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. But if they're willing, just to practice, to see, and I have them practice saying it just regularly, and then I have them practice it with their hand on their heart. And then I invite them to, to notice, do you notice a, a, any difference on how that feels for you? I never tell them how to feel how you feel is your own experience. And what this does, there's actually a mechanism behind this, is that when you put your hand on your heart, even in, in a self-hug, it releases oxytocin, which is, I think you, you know all about it. It's, it's, it's the chemical, it's known as the cuddle. <laughs> the cuddle uh, hormone or transmitter that helps us with these warm, fuzzy feelings. And so if, if that evokes that for you, I would uh, suggest trying that out. If that just sounds too weird, you don't want to do it, then don't do it. <laughs> so this, this idea of trust disruptor, I think is really important because the other thing I'm seeing that's so sad it's rare nowadays that I ever work with an adult who has never dieted. And what I'm seeing more and more that many times that these dieting efforts to shrink their body has started in childhood. And I'm not out here to bash or, bash or shame parents, but when you've got a parent saying you can't have any more food or you can't eat these kinds of foods, that's a powerful message that you can't be trusted. And what's really common is, they, um, is that they will also end up doing some sneak eating and have a lot of guilt and shame around that. And so it's amazing the kinds of conversations that open up when we start talking about someone's relationship with their eating and their body and, uh, and their mind. Yeah, um, I absolutely love that. Um, I got you, I, I got this with the hand on your heart. And I think, Evelyn, I've heard you say something before that sometimes when we take care of our hunger or, or we kind of nourish our body um, in a kind and consistent way through kind of nourishment of self-care, um, it's like saying, you know, hey, little cells, it's okay. I've got you. Food is yeah. and And I really love that. And, and it really came up um, as you were speaking that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the other thing I, I, I will reassure my patients is that, you know, every time you honor your hunger, one bite at a time, you're healing that relationship, and you're cultivating trust. And that's, that's the other thing I look at in this book, too, is, you know, well, it's one thing to have trust disruptors, but how do we, how do we cultivate trust? And these are acts of trust when, you know, when your body is saying, clearly, I'm hungry, and rather than withholding food, it's like, I'm gonna feed you, you know, those are think, ways that we build trust yeah yeah and I think also something that I see come up is sometimes intuitive eating being manipulated into a sort of hunger and fullness diet oh yeah um, yes, I was hoping you might be able to speak to you know is it possible when practicing intuitive eating to eat when you're not hungry 
Oh, yeah. So let's, let's talk about all of this. So, you know, part of what you're describing, well, first, let me, let me back up and say this in a little more broad context. You know, we can't cherry pick one or two principles and say that's what intuitive eating is, you know. And it's really common when you're coming from diet culture, which diet culture is very binary. Here are the rules, pass or fail, good or bad. And so with that mindset, when you're coming in with that mindset to intuitive eating, it's easy to unintentionally to turn intuitive eating into a binary system or into some type of diet. And this is a really good example. This is not pass or fail. I like to really stress this is learning and discovery. And to answer your question, yeah, you know, you're, there's going to be times where you're going to eat when you're not hungry. And sometimes that's actually what you actually need to do. You know, if you've got a work schedule and your lunch is at a certain time, it's not necessarily going to line up when you're precisely hungry. And that's okay. I call that nourishment as self-care. And sometimes I'll ask my, my clients to think about what would be the kind thing to do for your body. This doesn't have to be precise. And conversely, I've had patients panic when they eat past comfortable fullness. And, and just to make it really clear, let's, 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 um, let's amplify this a bit and say that you ate to a point that you were physically uncomfortable because I will often ask somebody well uh, how, how do you know that you ate past comfortable fullness because sometimes they have rules in their mind and judgments as to what this is and and so what happens many times I've had patients panic thinking they did something wrong that they they blew it or something bad is going to happen I've had people say many things like this and what I say right now this is actually an opportunity to witness your body working and they'll say well what do you mean I go well, well instead of panicking so there tends to be a panicking and then a, a reactive compensation of some sort. It might be like, well, vowing I'm not going to have my next meal. Or I'm going to skip a snack or I'm going to do something. And there's all this micromanaging out of fear. So it's reactive fear is what it is. Diet culture kind of teaches you that too. And so I'd say instead, I, I hear you're uncomfortable. We can certainly honor that and own that. I'm not asking you to pretend what not, what, that it's not there, but it can be I'm physically uncomfortable and this is an opportunity to watch my body work rather than um, panic and, and micromanage. And maybe what will end, you'll end up seeing some things. Maybe you'll end up discovering, oh my gosh, I wasn't hungry uh, in the afternoon when I normally have a snack of some sort. Or gosh, when it was time when I was eating dinner, um, I, I wasn't hu hungry to the point that I, I usually am. So watching cause and effect as it's happening. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things I ask my patients to do. Although I think I ask them to do a lot of things that are hard. <laughs> But what I ask them to do that this is actually an opportunity to practice not reacting, to practice not reacting, because many times, and this is you know, for anyone listening along, you know, if you look at your own history of whatever diet or food plan, lifestyle, <laughs> I try and give a lot of examples because so many diets now are saying they're not a diet, wink, wink, they are, it's gaslighting. Uh, but look at how many times that was actually a reactive response because of a panic feeling you were having about something around your body. And so this is a way to start doing it differently. And it is, it is a practice, the practice of not, not reacting. Yeah, I, I think that's um, such an important point. And I, I like that you kind of like are, are thinking about fullness or kind of what fullness feels like in the body as a physical sensation as an expression of the body working and the kind of knowledge that that that's a, that kind of 
um, sensation will come up because I think diet culture has also kind of um, created a lot of scaremongering around feeling full. There's all these things saying, you know, stop before you're full. Um, and, you know, really liking to think that that's a sign that the body is kind of had enough or it's kind of letting you know, it's giving you that signal, it's communicating with you. And again, you can kind of trust that, or as you say, learn from that and also know that it's not a black or white pass or fail. Well, and that's such a good point. And, and that is that our, these normal cues, these normal satiety cues have been so pathologized. And it's why I'm careful with my language. I don't say symptoms of hunger. I'll say cues of hunger or signs of, of hunger. And, you know, that's something to think about that if you have spent a great deal of time faking out hunger, faking out fullness, then you know what? It would really be understandable that you're confused about eating because your body's been confused. And one one of the ways I've seen this a lot in terms of fullness is somebody will eat a meal that is very high in bulk and but 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 not so much in 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 energy and so what ends up happening is they have this experience of feeling volume in terms of feeling kind of a fullness and yet at the same time there's this sense like something is missing like i'm i want something i still need something and i've had patients panic over that and i'll say you know that's another sign or another understanding of fullness it's your body going hey where's, where's the rest of the nutrients here? We didn't get much energy, <laughs> you know, where's the, where's the carbs? And so I would generally say when I'm, I, I like to give little markers along the way or signposts for my clients to look at, you know, when you have uh, this, this comfortable fullness, there's a contentment to it. There's a, a there, and it's, just, if you're looking at a meal, it's going to sustain you for a period of time. And so if you find yourself eating a meal and you're hungry just an hour or two hours later, what that would suggest to me is, you know, I think what you're really having is a snack because I've seen a lot of people misunderstand fullness and they think it's eating until hunger goes away. Now that's part of on en route to fullness, but you pass through absence of hunger and then you start feeling uh, more levels of, of fullness. And I can't tell you the amount of patients I've had who have thought that there's something wrong with them, that they just ate and now they're already thinking again. And once again, it's because their body is working. They weren't eating enough because fullness has been so pathologized. Now, the other thing I will say, I have some clients I work with that actually prefer grazing, having smaller, more frequent meals. There's nothing wrong with that, but just know you're going to get hungry more frequently uh, and, and make food decisions more, more frequently. And so sometimes what I recommend or suggest to my clients when they're just exhausted by all this is that if they really want to get connected to these basic cues, it's sometimes it is a little easier to do something I call meal based eating where you're having some nice meals versus these these small snacks because then you're in this place of kind of ambiguity where you're neither hungry nor full and it's subtle and again you can eat in that way I'm not trying to say one way is better than the other but when you're in the beginning of this it's a little easier if the meals are a little more um, substantial that makes sense that, yeah yeah in the sense that it can help us to tune into those cues a little bit yeah whilst we're in that in those early kind of discovery stages although i guess we're always discovering more about the ways in which the body may be communicating to us on both a physical and an emotional 
level. Well, and that's actually a really good point. And let's let's use current events right now with with all the pandemic and all the things that are going on. It's incredibly stressful. And I've got a lot of clients right now who are describing nausea, which, by the way, can be a sign of, of stress. It also can be uh, from a from a trauma being re reactivated. And so then the question I often get is, what do you do when your body's kind of shut down? That can happen in survival times and times of stress where you don't really feel hunger and and maybe you're not even uh this idea of this kind of this nauseous uh, kind of place um it's hard to tap into fullness as well and this is once again where i look at nourishment as self-care what's the kind thing to do we are live sentient beings we do need nourishment and, and what i suggest is looking at from your own history if you have this i've had some patients that don't is looking at meals and snacks in your past that that you like or that maybe that you tolerate actually in this place we're looking more at something you can just tolerate and it also matches your energy level in terms of putting it together and and therefore we can have this that we can rely on in these in these difficult times and we're going through difficult times right now and again this is normal to have this waxing and weighing of, of appetite during stress yeah yeah and thank you so much for for sharing that as well Evelyn because I think what I always love to do is come back to how intuitive eating is that self-care framework approach to eating. And That's exactly it. Really, yeah. And I, and I learned this from you from, from doing your training, but this kind of um, integration of emotion, instinct and thought and really takes into account those um, physical sensations, but also ultimately what is the most kind and caring way I can look after my body right now or feed my body right now whilst also accounting for kind of other factors like what means do I have right now what do I have around my access to food like um and really acknowledging that that's going to be different for everyone and also acknowledging perhaps some of of the privileges that we we might have in terms of access to food and you know not necessarily being able to have exactly the lobster pasta or whatever it is we want in that uh -huh. moment. Well, you know what, you're actually raising a really good point. I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. And, and what you're also describing in part, you know, is the principle of satisfaction, aiming for satisfaction, which is really the, the hub of intuitive eating. It's incredibly personal. And I've had patients have the, the, the idea or the belief that, well, every time you eat, it's got to be a 10. It's got to be nirvana. It's got nirvana, rather. It's got to be just amazing. And, and my answer to that is, you know what? Sometimes what satisfaction is, it, it gets the job done, you know? And, and, and then when we're talking about access and means, satisfaction isn't necessarily eating a favorite food or a favorite meal, especially if you don't have the means for it. It becomes an issue of, oh my gosh, what can I eat that's gonna fill my belly and sustain me? So we need to look at that and we need to be cautious of perfectionistic tendencies, because I see that being reinforced in diet culture as well. And so one of the things I see happening sometimes is when someone has finally experienced the freedom of eating, they've made peace with the food, I realize we haven't talked about that yet, but they've had enough, they've had enough to eat, they're nourishing their body on a consistent basis for the most part. And basically all foods could fit for the most part. And sometimes what happens is they sit down to eat and they're disappointed that it wasn't a 10 on satisfaction. And what I usually see is sometimes I have, I have patients feel embarrassed about that. And I'll say, well, if you think about all the years you've spent 
depriving yourself. Sometimes what happens then in these moments is when satisfaction isn't at 10, it might feel kind of devastating for you. Uh, but in time, what will happen is it can be uh, a, a disappointment and, and over time it can just be something that you know what this 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 met my what I needed to do today and I, I got to go on and, and <laughs> get on with my my life there's many types of things that can happen and relatedly back to fullness I've had patients as they go along in this principle of intuitive eating is sometimes they feel sad when they actually feel full and what's happening at this point again this is normal I've had patients think there's something wrong with them and it's like, no, it's like you're now so connected to your body. There's this recognition that if I was to continue to eat, I wouldn't physically feel good. I would feel uncomfortable. And I also know I can eat this food. I can come back to it. But right now, stopping feels sad. And that, that happens. I have that happen sometimes when there's a maybe a favorite dessert at a restaurant I want to have. And then when, I, when I'm finished with my meal, it's like, oh, my God, I, I, I don't really think I can eat it and enjoy it at the same time because I'm, I'm full, you know. No, it's a disappointment, but it's not devastating. So all different types of things that happen. But the main point is to recognize that satisfaction doesn't have to be a 10. It doesn't have to be perfect. Sometimes it's just getting the job done. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting um, hearing that. And something I, I'm seeing in, in my clients a little bit is that when um, perhaps there was quite restrictive eating tendencies, um, food was kind of sometimes like this, like real high, like it was like a drug and then as they've gone perhaps through nourishment and self-care and they're eating more regularly and consistently in a wider range of foods, food isn't giving them that same high. Oh, and yeah. it's a little disappointing. I, I didn't know if, if you might be able to speak to that at all. I can, I can. Um... And what I talk about in this case, so we're really talking about something that happens sometimes when you've made peace with food, that when foods are forbidden, there's this excitement that happens when you've made the decision that you're going to go eat the forbidden food. It, it often, it's in, it, it takes up this place in your mind that you're very excited about, you can't wait for it. And there's an urgency that often has, there's a guilt that can also happen. Uh, there's this idea like, let's hurry up and, and, and get this over with sometime so I, the guilt doesn't catch up with me. And what ends up happening is when we cut through all the drama, and that's what ends up happening when you, when you have when you know that you can really have this food over and over again, it takes away the excitement. And that's something that a lot of uh, people who do, who are stuck in diet culture don't have this. It's called habituation. And that's has to do with novelty that when you experience something new, it's exciting, a new pair of shoes, uh, a new love, a new lover, you know, it's exciting. And after a while, I mean, you still like the shoes and you still, you know, are connected with your, your uh, um, lover, but it's the excitement compared to the early days still isn't, it, it, it's, it's not there. And so that's what ends up happening with the food. And I've had some patients actually get angry about it, you know, like, you know, at least I had that to look forward to. And it's so ironic when we process it and have a conversation, because it's also been a source of such 
angst because the amount of denigration and the beating up that often happens afterwards is profound. And so sometimes we step back and look at this role this has played in your life, you know, that sometimes this has been a coping mechanism, just the excitement of thinking about the food, the actual getting of the food or the making of the food, and then the time spent in the in the self-loathing that often happens is that it ends up becoming, I call it sometimes trading anxieties that while this, I've never met a person that says, yeah, man, I love beating myself up mentally. It feels really good. It doesn't, um, but it's predictable and familiar. And so sometimes that might feel preferred over wondering when is this pandemic going to end? Am I going to get the vaccine? All these questions that are coming up. And so sometimes when we can see the role it's played for us, it's understandable there would be this sadness. It's understandable there would be this grief. And what ends up happening is I'll start asking, you know, what other things in life give you excitement or joy? And so sometimes what ends up happening, I have people that, that don't really know the answers to those questions because they've been stuck in, in, in diet culture. So I, this is really, you know, many of these parts, actually, I would say intuitive eating is a pathway to healing. And part of it is not getting caught up in in the shame of whatever is coming up for you including the sadness of not having the excitement of food because now that you can have it whenever you want to it's like well do i really want it and if i eat it now am i going to enjoy it so that that kind of thrill is gone i do want to say however if it's a food that you generally enjoy eating you're still going to enjoy eating it but that excitement thrill might not be there and at the same time, all the, the, the guilt and the, and the denigration that comes afterwards with many people, that will be gone. It's incredibly freeing. And then the brain space is freed up as, as well. But it, it catches people by surprise, which I think why it is often felt so deeply. They are grieving the loss of the thrill, but they're also having realizations that, wow, Look how much of my life was spent chasing diet culture. Look how much of my life was spent disconnected from my body. Look at how much of my life was disconnected from relationships that are important to me, my partner, my kids, because my brain was busy calculating what I can or can't have to eat. And there can be, there is sadness and grief that comes with it. And we need to make the space for that. And rather than getting caught in shame, and regret because we can't, as we know, we can't change the past is to come from the lens of compassion, from self-compassion and to recognize, you know, it's understandable based on the culture that we're living in that I got caught up into all of this because diet culture is everywhere. And now I know, I know differently and I can live differently as, as, as a result of that. And I will sometimes, sometimes in the beginning or sometimes at this point, have clients take a look, look at where diet culture is in all the different domains of your life. It's in places of worship. It's in school. It's in healthcare big time. It's in the media. It's on social media. So it's so understandable you got pulled into this, you know, and I can't tell you, I'm sure you've seen this where there've been influencers like on Instagram, you know, talking all about their latest, greatest, you know, way of eating. And then three years later, it's like, oops, I have an eating disorder, you know, and they were all caught up into that. And they didn't know that they were causing harm to themselves and to other people, which is why we need to really disrupt and dismantle diet culture and systems of oppression. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think so problematic how that can be showing up 
on on social media. Yeah, and so one of the things I do because sometimes I I know I, I sometimes get on the box and talk about you gotta disrupt dismantle diet culture sounds so big and daunting. And so one of the ways I'd like to make it more meaningful, accessible, is just the idea of imagine what it would be like to end diet culture in your family. And I'll tell you, when I'm working with um, the young adults, not always, who are just starting families or they have a young family, this idea is often so profound, this vision that we might not be able to change the whole culture right now, but you can actually set boundaries in your home. I, I call it, you know, <laughs> healing at the kitchen table, basically, and that all bodies are worthy of dignity and respect. We don't denigrate bodies. We don't gossip about bodies and we don't denigrate foods and put them into these hierarchies of, you know, kill you or cure you kinds of things. And I've had a lot of patients who really see the vision in that and also see that this is something I can do. And it really thrills me because uh, it, it gives you your agency back, you know? Yeah, I, I absolutely um, love that. And I think um, something that I find in, in my clinic and my practice is how there can be lots of um, sitting in the dilemma of perhaps instinctively wanting to pursue intuitive eating and cultivating a kind of more caring relationship with food on one's body and yet existing in diet culture and feeling like one is very much swimming upstream and um, feeling quite alone in that and that's something that I really like to come back to with them what would it be like to on you know, your individual level with your future family? And, and what would it be like if, you know, young people, in, at least in your household, could grow up feeling kindness and acceptance and trust towards their body? And I always find that to be really powerful. It, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and, I, and I think it's just hopeful. You know, and the other thing too, I, I'm looking more into this and that is how can we create community, especially when the dominant culture right now is, you know, is diet culture. And we do have the, you know, the intuitive eating online community, which is peer to peer support. But I would love to see this be in, in, in real life, not just in uh, places on the internet. Granted right now in this time of the pandemic, that's all we have choices to do. But looking at, you know, how can we create this uh, in our own communities? First, we start with our family and then looking at other other areas of possibilities. It gives me great hope when I when I look at it that way. Yeah, me too. Um, Evelyn, we have touched a tiny bit on, well, not a tiny bit, but we keep dropping in make peace with food. Yeah. Um, I was curious to hear a little bit more about that principle from you. Um, and particularly, uh, or maybe we could also touch in that um, food guilt, which is something else that's come up. And I think something that really savvy a lot of people can experience um, as a product of diet culture and wellness culture and, and everything that is is said. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's funny, I've, I've been quoted a lot as saying, unless you, you know, kill the chef or the farmer, there really should be no morality in, in eating. But what has happened is eating and bodies have become so moralized. And that's why we keep hearing these, these uh, confessions of guilt, if you will. So let's start with that. And then we'll move into make peace with food, because it's very much related. And so one of the things that I've started doing as of more, more explicitly 
is really working with guilt because it's when someone's experiencing guilt, they feel it. It's, it's hard to miss. So I look this as this is an opportunity to tap into your awareness. I mean, it, it, it gets your attention because guilt doesn't feel good. And so one of the things I like doing when this is happening, I like to remind people that we really need to take the morality out of, of eating and also trying to shame people into health is not impactful and it actually hurts, it hurts people. Um, and then looking at how we can do this on our own level. And so when guilt is, is knocking its <laughs> feeling state on your body, and again, it doesn't feel good, it's an opportunity to ask, oh my goodness, what rule am I butting up against right now? What, what perceived moral code am I breaking? Because you know guilt is an emotion based on breaking some kind of moral code. And then we can start looking at what, what is this rule? And just looking at it really with neutrality, curiosity, gentle curiosity. What is this rule? Um, is it serving me? And do I still want it? And for some people, I'll even ask what the origin is, uh, because sometimes this comes from family belief systems and how they were, how they were raised. And you know, if if it turns out it's like, oh my gosh, this is my parents' rule of of dieting. No, I don't want it. Now, I wish I can say that by simply <clears throat> having awareness of that, that boom, it magically disappears. It's not quite that simple. It's going to take some repetitions. But what ends up happening is bringing it more into your awareness and consciousness gives you an opportunity to say, huh, do I want this rule anymore? And the more you keep realizing, no, I don't, it's not serving me, it actually starts to dissipate because simultaneously what's going on is you're starting to connect more with your body, what's going on with your body. And so then related to all of this, well, the, the food guilt is, is kind of an intersection of both uh, challenging the food police, which has to do the rules you have around eating and making peace with food is a principle that is commonly misunderstood and terrifies a lot of people, to be honest, because what it is about is about your emotional health, that on an emotional perspective, there is no difference between eating you know, a, a piece of broccoli versus uh, a green jelly bean or something like that. Now, you and I very well know, and most people do for that matter, that you know, nutritionally, there's certainly a difference. This is not about the nutrition content of what you're eating. It's about the emotional impact. Having guilt, anxiety, and shame around your eating is not good for your mental health. And it ends up setting up this paradox where the more you believe or think you can have something, the more it, one, it creates desire for it, and it creates this forbidden food syndrome. Last supper eating is what we also call it when somebody is getting ready to go on some kind of new diet or food plan. And as they're getting ready, the, usually the week leading up to it, there's almost this say uh, farewell to food <laughs> feast that goes on. Another form of disconnected eating, because the person at the time truly, truly, really believes I'm never going to have this food again. I'm never, never, ever going to eat it. And so I got to, I got to get it now while I can get it now while I can. So this is a setup and it's problematic. And so what ends up happening is someone goes on their diet and then at some point they can't stand the rules anymore. Their little cells are like, man, we can't eat this way. This is not enough food. And 
you can't take it anymore and the rules quote are violated and because a person la labels that or judges that is wrong that can also tend to create some all or none eating and then that terrifies the person oh my god i need rules to uh to rein all of this in and you get stuck in this cycle so how do we break the cycle well, we break the cycle by making peace with food. And what this has to do is this idea is that basically all foods can fit. Now I'm talking about uh, emotionally. I'm also, I know there are exceptions. Like if somebody has a life-threatening allergy, let's say to peanuts or, or shellfish, but for the most part, for most people, all foods can can fit. And that's a daunting thought I realize. And we don't have to do this all at once. We can ease into this slowly. And it's based on some pretty sound research around habituation that has to do with, with novelty. I was kind of alluding to that earlier. Uh, and it also has to do with something called restraint theory. It's a body of research that shows uh, with a particular group of people who have rules around trying to maintain or suppress their weight, they have these rigid rules around eating and they get to this point where they can't stand it anymore and they break the restraint. And usually what, what breaks the restraint, there's some kind of emotion, some kind of event, maybe it's even the availability of food and this vulnerability. And then they tend to get into this all or none eating and they they disconnect from their body. That's what got me really interested in that, in that research. And then the third area of research this um, comes from is also exposure therapy. The more, more you're exposed to this kind of novelty over time, uh, you don't have the same kind of response. And I, you know, it's funny. I didn't go in, used to go into those details with my patients, but because diet culture is so fierce and their fear is so strong, I find sometimes it's helpful to unpack what, what, why this, this principle is so important. Because then what ends up happening when you truly have permission, not just intellectually, but you really know it to be true for yourself, you really get to ask yourself, do I really want this food if I eat this food right now? Am I going to enjoy it? And um, also asking, do I like how this food feels in my body? And it's really interesting to me to see the amount of people that discover sometimes that, oh, you know, I thought I really loved donuts. And it turned out what I love is the excitement of the donuts, but I don't like how I feel when I finish them. And they might end up deciding donuts aren't a big thing, which is a paradox. In fact, I call this sometimes the paradox principle because it changes things so much. It's, it's a paradox. And I also don't want to suggest that by having permission to eat, suddenly these foods you're no longer going to like. It's like, no, but this is something that we see happen sometimes. Or it turns out like, let's say you just love cake. Great. Uh, but knowing that you get to have it, don't you want to eat it in a way that feels good? Don't you want to eat it at a time in which you can actually enjoy it? So there's all of these things. This is, it, it's sometimes, I'm hesitant to use the word magical. <laughs> but what ends up happening is my, my patients just get so stunned by the effect of this. And I delight in watching it over. I never get tired of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Evelyn, I guess I also just wanted to, to jump in because something that I'm seeing a bit more recently is um, sometimes, again, people on social media perhaps saying, oh, when I, you know, made peace with food, suddenly I only wanted 
objectively nutritious foods. And sometimes <laughs> that concerns me a little bit because I don't think that is everyone's experience at all. And really what, again, we're, I guess we're getting back to is that all foods can fit and that the outcome doesn't have to be that you are disappointed by a food. It can be that it was just as, as joyous and wonderful as you expected. Absolutely. And actually, sometimes it tastes even better when you remove all the guilt from that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I was also just, and I've very much got my uh, my eye on the time, um, but I was just hoping to ask, I think um, make peace with food is, is such a, a wonderful principle. And I was wondering how it might be more different, perhaps for somebody in eating disorder recovery, where perhaps um, that, and I should perhaps specify perhaps more like a um, presentation of anorexia or orthorexia, where mm. that sort of restraint might not be be broken and how somebody might go about make peace with food, I guess, when there's a lot um, of underlying fear around that food and perhaps they think, well, I just should never have it again. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I want to address that and also the difference when somebody has thin privilege and makes peace with food versus somebody in a fat body. It's a different experience how they're met in culture. But let's answer your question first. So what we have to recognize when someone has an eating disorder, besides the fact that <laughs> it, it can be very dangerous, is that the, these rules they have around eating get very fixed and rigid. And in that process, they become more unhealthy, both physically and mentally. And in this rigidity, it's also affecting them socially. And that's one of the things that I, I do with this. I, I, like, I, I like to take a really good history. And it does feel different when I'm working with people with, with, with orthorexia. And one way we can look at this, and I, I stress this aspect in these situations, is we're looking about having the flexibility about your food choices. It's certainly fine to have preferences, but we know from a mental health standpoint how important cognitive flexibility is and so what this i'll give you a really good example i had a patient that would uh, with some orthorexia that wouldn't eat any fruits or vegetables unless they were organic now granted this patient has a lot of privilege to be able to afford those in the united states and as we were doing our work together what she realized as her kids were getting older um, she would buy, you know, organic uh, fruits and they would eat them all up <laughs> and, and then uh, there would be nothing for her there. And she wouldn't even think about buying uh, uh, non-organic foods in, in which she could have more abundance. So she had some privilege, but money was still an issue too. As her kids were teenagers, they were, you know, you, your body's growing and you eat a lot more. And so she said, here, I could have gone and bought more if I bought them non-organic and I chose not to. And this was, I love it when patients come to their own realizations rather than me say it. And she goes, and I realized here I was now, I was having days without eating fruits or vegetables altogether. What is the impact of that on my health? So looking at physical health and, and mental health. So it's about loosening it up. And what I do here in many cases, there's two things. I do a lot of education, but a lot of experiential activities. And what ends up happening is the mindset so fixated on if, if they don't eat food in the, in the purest, most rigid ways that they're not going to be healthy. And I start looking at, well, let's take a look at what these ideas are and where this came about. And 
one example, when you look at the issue of organic versus non-organic, when you start looking at the body of research, looking at fruits and vegetables for health benefits, it's pretty consistent. And they're lumping in all fruits and vegetables. It's not saying only if you eat organic. So we start looking at that. And the other thing that's different with patients with eating disorders is we're, use, we're looking at usually these exposures of having foods that are more ordinary. I was giving you examples earlier, more like desserts, but I've had people especially because diet culture, I know I never thought keto would be a lifestyle. So I've got patients coming in who are afraid of foods that I've never heard of before. And, um, and I've been doing this for a really long time that they're suddenly afraid of eating even, you know, whole grain, whole grains, because it's got carbs, and we know our brain needs carbs. So that's a way that I that I work with this. And there's, um, yeah, and so sometimes we'll do exposure therapies in, in session as well, where I'm eating with them. Yeah, yeah. And I really like what you said. And, and I always like to hold in mind kind of with any client thinking about in the service of what in the service of what and it sounded like with your client there with the um, organic um, berries, it was kind of in the service of, of actually her well being underneath that um, impacts some of the nutrition benefits of that food, but also again, coming back to that emotional well-being social well-being I was like my clients how are you feeding your your social well-being and perhaps what does having these rules add to your life and and what might it take away to really think about intention behind removing the charge or the underlying fear behind some of these foods oh exactly and that that, that's so well said and looking at the intention behind behavior because here's the other converse thing i like to stress now and that is diet culture doesn't get to claim vegetables you know and that is you don't have to explain why you're having a salad with your meal or as your meal you know so I've seen that happen also. <laughs> and so part of it is, is that let's let's get back to the joy of eating. Let's get back to the pleasure of eating and not having to explain why or why not you're doing what you are what you are doing. And it's getting back again to your own autonomy and agency. Yeah, absolutely. Evan, you you mentioned just now that you might um, speak to the difference perhaps in making peace with food between somebody within privilege and somebody in a bigger body. And I know that we are we are pushed for time, but I really didn't want to overlook that because I think um, it's it's so important. And I was hoping you might be able to just share some of your wisdom on that. Yeah, you know, and, and this is a really, I've had some conversations with fat activists and they'll say, you know, you need to understand Evelyn. <laughs> so I'm all yours. You know, that when someone within privilege and that is somebody who's, who can, you know, go into an airplane and not worry they're going to fit on the seat. They're not going to get heckled or bullied in the grocery store and so on or online. Within privilege. Uh, it, it, ha- it has to do with how society treats you. So someone within privilege makes peace with food and they're celebrating. Oh my God, isn't that great? She's eating the cupcakes or the donuts. Then you take somebody who's in a bigger body, let's say a fat body. They've made peace with their body. They made peace with food and they do these very same things. And now they are ridiculed and denigrated. They're met with hostility and we need to acknowledge that. And it's another reason why we need to be looking at dismantling diet culture, which is really rooted, as I was saying earlier, in, in, in fat phobia. And so we need to look at, you know, these issues around safety. What does someone need in order to feel safe and, and, and so forth? So I just didn't want to buzz by that and say nothing, but that hopefully helps give you some perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And there is so much more um, that 
I'm sure we could speak to on that and also important that we really include the activists um, and others perhaps that have that that experience to to speak to this from from their perspectives and to learn and understand more about that from their perspectives as well yeah sure uh, I'm so sad that we're out of time because I know, I huh? easily <laughs> keep going and I think we've made a really good um go at some of the principles um i know that perhaps we didn't get to talk about body respect and joyful movement and gentle nutrition as much but there is so so much in here and evelyn thank you so so much for talking us through some of these and i always feel it re really reassuring to be hearing it from from you as as the co-author of intuitive eating um i know your fourth edition of your book came out in 2020 which I have literally in front of me and yeah. also releasing um intuitive eating for every day that's coming out in March which I have pre-ordered on Amazon and oh, I would really thank you. that anyone listening um goes and and pre-orders a copy or gets himself a copy I would love perhaps if you might be able to share where people can find you um perhaps individuals looking to find out a little bit more about intuitive eating um, and getting support with that or healthcare professionals as well that might be listening and want to find out more. Yeah, so here, let's start with healthcare practitioners, professionals, because I do do training and, and certification in intuitive eating. And the best way you can find me is either through my website, evelyntribley.com or through our uh, intuitiveeating.org website. And I'd say the same thing with uh, people who want to learn more about intuitive eating. Uh, they're on both websites. The intuitiveeating.org actually has more because there's a community there, our peer-to-peer our peer, -to -peer support group. It's free. There's no cost to do that. We have amazing volunteers in there. We have lists. Actually, I still need to update the, the new studies that have been recently published on intuitive eating. There's tons of resources there, but there's also our certified intuitive eating counselor directory and that's something i'm very feel very proud about and that is we have over 1200 health professionals in 29 countries who've been certified in this because one of the things that's happening as you were saying earlier is intuitive eating has been co-opted by diet culture and i've seen some health professionals using intuitive eating in ways we never intended in ways that can be harmful and so I, so I say to people out there, if you want to work with somebody with the intuitive eating principles is, is to make sure they've been trained and certified in our, our method and on the directory, that's the way you can do, you can enter the, the country this, and, and so on and, and, and figure that out or just get some free support. The other place I would say would also be my, my Instagram account at Evelyn Tribley, where I pretty much, I'd say 95% of my content is all around intuitive eating. There's a lot of good resources there as well. Yeah, and just for um, any healthcare professionals listening that are thinking about getting certified, um, I have to say it's the best training that I think I have done and certainly Ooh. most meaningful um, Thank you. that I have done. And yeah, it was just um, such a, a, a privilege for my own learning and understanding and to be working so close with you on that. So if anyone is sitting on the fence, um, uh -huh. I couldn't recommend it more. Oh, thank you. And I have to tell you, I still do all the trainings live. I've had people say, oh, you know, you just ought to, you know, video them and just, you know, them, you know, where they can. It's like there's something that happens when you do it live, plus I update as I go. So I'm kind of stubborn on that right now. <laughs> so, but thank you for your kind feedback. Yeah, well, Evelyn, thank you for all that you do and all the resources that you put out. I know you must be incredibly busy and I'm also enjoying your um your 
kind of Instagram content that you've been doing on the principles, all of your training. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And I know that intuitive eating has definitely changed my life uh, personally oh, and professionally. Um, awesome so just um, a, a huge thank you to you for that and for, for coming on the podcast. You are so welcome. Thrilled to be here and do it. Well, I am wishing you a great rest of today. I think it's, it's um, kind of lunchtime where, where you are, but it's evening time here, which means it is officially oh. the weekend. So um, wishing you um, a wonderful weekend. And Thank you. you I'm going to go pick up my new surfboard. That's what I'm really excited about. So <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, enjoy. Thank you. Take Thank care. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. So that was episode one with Evelyn Triboli and a massive thank you to Evelyn for really getting at the 50 shades in intuitive eating and actually helping us to really understand what this self-care framework approach to eating really means um, from from the person that, that actually developed it. And I think this can really help us to question where we might see things from the likes of Gwyneth Paltrow, Sai um, and other sort of diet culture focused organizations co-opting these principles and really get back to what they were intended to mean um, and how we can use these in cultivating a kinder relationship to food, mind and body. Um, so huge thank you again to, to Evelyn. Um, and if you like this episode, please don't forget to um, like and share and um, if you can would be so grateful if you could drop a five-star review to help more people find out about the podcast Um, thanks so much again for tuning in and we will see you next time bye